Now, last week was Vacation Bible School, and I want to thank everybody who helped and thank those that sent kids our way. It was um, a wonderful week. I did not dress up in my safari out. I, I saw Janae did that earlier. But at our church, we typically preach through books of the Bible, one passage at a time. But we thought it would be good this weekend to step back from doing that uh, as we normally do and just really teach through the same book that they were learning about all week. That is the story of Exodus. The book of Exodus is the second book in the Bible. And even though the book of Exodus occurred, the events in the book of Exodus occurred many years before Jesus in a very wonderful way they were preparing the people of God for their Messiah. And I hope that as we look back at that story in Exodus, it'll make us more thankful at the Messiah we do have in Jesus. So without further ado, let me read some of Exodus chapter 12. It's the first 14 verses. It'll be on the screen um, in just a moment if it's not there. It's the story of the Passover meal or the description of the Passover meal, which perhaps you've heard of. I'll just admit, some of these details will be odd to us. Some of them will hopefully be less odd as we finish the sermon. But in this story and details of the Passover, God was teaching us something wonderful about his salvation. So let me read it and then we'll pray and ask the Lord to be our teacher. Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house. Houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he shall, excuse me, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts, and on the lintels of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head and its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it. With with your belt fastened, with sandals on your feet, with your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. In other words, to get ready to go out of Egypt. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I shall strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood I will pass over you, and no plague shall befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for it. Would you join me in prayer as we study this passage together? Heavenly Father, 
Admittedly, some of these details are foreign to us. In some ways, the people of the Exodus and the story of the Exodus is foreign to us. But I pray, as we talk about it for these next few minutes, that not only would it, the story of the Passover, become more familiar to us, but the story of the greater redemption, your working through Jesus, would become more familiar to us as well. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. For the last, I don't know, perhaps maybe as long as six years, but certainly last four and five years, I've had a very strange relationship with food. Um, It sounds strange. Some of you have heard some of these details before, but at first it started with just mild sickness. Um, Didn't really know why. Um, And then it turned into what felt like I was dying. I've never... I'm not dead, obviously, right? So I don't know what it feels like to die, but it felt like at times, I think this might be what it feels like to feel like you're dying. Um, And no one knew why. I felt a lot like Humpty Dumpty. I went to all these people with, uh, they had office buildings with initials after their name, and and, and no one seemed to be able to put me back together again. But I think in hindsight, what was probably going on, and I thought this is still strange to me that this can happen in the middle of your life, but you can develop in, in my case, severe food allergies to a few things. I admit it, okay, I didn't want to say this, but I kind of thought people with food allergies were a little weird. <laughs> Forgive me. <laughs> I thought it was all in your head and not just in your stomach. I actually think now it's a lot just in your stomach or in my stomach at least. Anyway, I, I'm doing much better with, you know, a med- I don't spare you the details here, but uh, I'm doing much better. If I ruthlessly avoid just a few things, I think I do pretty well most of the time. I've put on 25 pounds, uh, which most people, like, that's not exciting to. For me, I didn't want to weigh what I wore or weighed as a freshman in high school um, anymore. So things are better, but I, but, but I have had this strange relationship with food. And one of the most difficult parts was realizing that food is not just food. There's a social component to food, and, and that's a good thing. Uh, we celebrate with meals. We grieve with meals. We make new friends over meals. We um, hang out and catch up with old friends over meals. These are good things, and some meals are more memorable than others. I know you're supposed to mem- remember every detail of your wedding day. You put so much time and money uh, into the thing, and it's a wonderful day, but it's all a, largely a blur. And I vaguely remember the food at my wedding, but I do remember uh, the food on my two-month anniversary. I know that, <laughs> who celebrates two months? Um, we did. I know newly engaged couples do strange things. They're a little strange, uh, but we celebrated our two-month anniversary, and we went to this super fancy steak restaurant uh, in St. Louis, a restaurant I probably couldn't afford to go to anymore. But at the time, we had no kids and two engineering jobs, uh, so we were able to do such uh, strange things. But I remember exactly what I ordered, and it was glorious. I also remember a number of meals. Um, there was this kind of three- or four-year span where uh, my dad would take me and my two brothers, his three sons, out to a Christmas Eve dinner at a it's a really nice Brazilian barbecue place in Chicago. And uh, it was wonderful. I don't know if you've ever been to a Brazilian barbecue place, at least the ones we went to there. Again, super expensive. But we go and, and it was, you don't really order uh, at a Brazilian barbecue. They just sort of, you sit there and it's like this glorious meat buffet that's brought to you as you sit there. 
just enjoy. <laughs> and, and, and the way, at least this one did it, you had this green, this, you had this card. One side was green, the other side was red. And if you wanted glorious, delicious meat buffet brought to your table, cut, sliced, laid on your plate, you stayed green. And when you didn't, you went red. And so, needless to say, me and my three competitive brothers uh, <laughs> uh, had this like fight to stay green as long as we could. This is not a sermon on gluttony. <laughs> I'm sure it could have served as an illustration of that. But as memorable as those meals are, most meals are forgettable. I don't know what I had for lunch last Tuesday. I mean, I could look at my phone and think about my calendar and who I was with or what I was doing and maybe remember. But I certainly don't remember the second Tuesday in February what I had for lunch. So what's the difference? Like, time isn't necessarily the issue. Like, okay, this meal was close, so I remember, and this meal was far, so I don't remember. Because we can remember what we had for Thanksgiving when we were 10. I mean, where we were, and whose home we were in, and who was there. Maybe who yelled at who. So what's the difference? I think we remember certain ritual repeated meals, like Thanksgiving and Christmas or anniversaries. And not only, it works both ways, not only do we remember those meals, but those meals actually help us remember. Our Creator knows that we are people who forget where we put our wallet, forget what time volleyball practice ends like we did last week. (laughs) I left a girl, uh, a daughter, uh, waiting to be picked up. We forget what day trash pickup is. And God knows we're prone to forget Him. Which is why God has created, instituted even certain ritual meals for his people. There are things too important to be forgotten. So God has established meals to help us remember. Now I've been reading the Bible for number of years, dozen years or so straight through. And at 20 minutes a day it takes almost all year. But I'm not so familiar with the Bible that I'm no longer aware of the fact that it's just a huge book. But I think there's a sense in which we could rightly summarize the Bible in three meals. Not breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Maybe somebody more creative than me could do that. But the three meals of the Passover, the Lord's Supper, and the feast, this wedding feast that's spoken of at the end of time. In these meals, Passover, the Lord's Supper, and the wedding feast at the end of time, God is helping us to remember things too important to forget. So this week, over a hundred children gathered here each night and we, for silliness and for singing, but also especially for study and reflection upon the story of God's redemption in Exodus. So let's talk about that for a moment. The Exodus story has disasters and deliverance, oppression and injustice. The Exodus story has dark magic with the Egyptian sorcerers and miracles performed through God or by God through Moses. The book of Exodus has singing and dancing and food. It's no wonder that the story of Exodus was a a wonderful story for a hundred kids to come and learn about at Vacation Bible School, but it's also no wonder that the story of Exodus has captivated adults' attention for 3,000 years. The first book of the Bible opens, this is the book of Genesis, 
with God creating a world. And there's Adam and Eve, and very quickly they fall into sin, and the world gets broken. And there's, there's a brokenness out there, and there's a brokenness in here. And so the world we experience is not the world that it was meant to be. And so God strives with his people through the book of Genesis, particularly this one family of Abraham. And at the end of the book, Abraham's family is in a bad way. There's a famine in the land. But very thankfully, there's this one son, a great-great-grandson of Abraham named Joseph, who's found his way to Egypt. He's risen to power. And he's able to provide through God's provision, I guess we could say, not only for Abraham's family, but for others. So they move down to Egypt. And that's where the story of Exodus picks up. With God's people in Egypt. Now, 400 years have gone by, but this is how the book of Exodus begins. Look with me just at a couple verses. Exodus chapter 1, verses 8, 9, and 10, we read this. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, this is the king of Egypt said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many. And too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. The Israelites were too many, he says. So Pharaoh enslaved them. It's terrible. And the book of Exodus tells the story of how God's people got out of this predicament. How the Israelites were freed from slavery. I won't recall, you know, I'm not going to retell every detail. But the outline basically goes like this. God raised up Moses as a leader. And through Moses and through crippling plagues, God entered into a hostage negotiations of sorts. With the most powerful man of the most powerful nation on earth. Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt. Now these plagues are interesting. The Nile River bleeds. The land swarms with flies. The ground is covered with frogs. And the sky is filled with flaming balls of fire. Sky, land, sea, decimated. Let my people go, God told Pharaoh. And each time Pharaoh says no, until he doesn't. I think it's helpful to think about these plagues as pressure points, each time becoming, you could say, in a sense, more and more painful. Not to be cruel, but to wake up Pharaoh, and to wake up the Egyptians to the reality that God is God. Pharaoh is not God. There's not gods of the land and sea and earth. God is God. And God was waking Pharaoh and, in a sense, the Egyptians, or the Egyptians and the Israelites up to that reality. Sometimes we do this as parents, now in, in different ways. But you have to get creative with your punishments. There's a time when timeouts no longer really work anymore, right? Uh, you have to remove desserts, privileges, which is a big deal in our house. <laughs> Sometimes you have to pull back from playdates with friends. Sometimes you have to take away the car keys. That's not so much a big deal in our house yet. (laughs) You might have to take away prom. Now, as cruel as that might sound, the intention's not to be cruel. It's to wake up your children or others that you care about 
to the gravity of what's taking place. God was trying to wake up Pharaoh, wake up the Egyptians, and wake up the Israelites to the fact that he was God and there are no other gods. But Pharaoh's heart was hard and he was slow to learn. And so there's a final plague. I want to reread just two verses from Exodus 12, which I read earlier. Verses 12 and 13 go like this. For I will, this is the Lord speaking, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you. This is the blood of the lamb on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague shall befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. God instructed that anyone who wanted to be saved needed to trust him. And that was true not just of the Israelites, but but as we read in the story, we realize that some Egyptians, that's a bad way to say this, but got in on this salvation. And they leave with the Israelites, some of them. And the way that God established that they would show their trust was by slaughtering a lamb that would be dying in their place. It's not that in Israel no one died. Someone died, it was just a lamb. And then they put that blood on the doorpost and God would pass over, hence the name of this meal. And this event was so significant as an identity marker for the people of Israel that it began, really we would say, their new year. You read those first few verses in that passage. This was to mark their birth as a nation. A new birth was taking place. With this salvation. We don't have time to talk about the Red Sea. And the man in the promised land. We'll leave those stories in Exodus for another day. It could be a fun book to preach through. But I said at the beginning. That you, I think the story of the Bible. Could be described in three meals. This Passover meal. The Lord's Supper. And then this future feast at the end of time. This wedding supper. So the first was this Passover. Let's talk just briefly for a moment about the Lord's Supper. So there was a man who came before Jesus to get the people ready for the Messiah. His name was John. And John's job was to get the people ready for the Messiah. And so he did that by telling the people of God what they needed to do to be ready for the Messiah. And what the Messiah would do when he got here. The Bible describes him as the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord. Now, when my wife and I got married, we had at our wedding, this is not, I guess, a staple of most weddings, but we had wedding criers. <laughs> now, these were not people who cried in the back lamenting our wedding, just to be clear. Um, wedding criers uh, walked down the aisle before the bride, sort of like, a, um, you know, you have the flower girl and, the, and, and the, the ring bearer. It was sort of like that. These were, we had friends of our family. They had three young boys at the time. I was looking on Facebook the other day. The other one, one's just graduating from high school um, and going off to college. But, but these young men, very young men at the time, uh, walked down the aisle holding a sign, said the bride was coming. They had bells. And their job uh, was just to get people ready for the bride. And they would say, the bride is coming. The bride is coming. Except they didn't. <laughs> They shouted, the pirates are coming, the pirates are coming. We don't know why they did that. Uh, they did that during the rehearsal. Uh, and it was so funny, we just thought, let's just, they did it during the wedding too. So, 
Do you know what John cries out as he's getting the people ready for the Messiah? He cries out, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John chapter 1 verse 29. Now that doesn't mean much, mean as much to us as it did to them because we haven't been celebrating the Passover every year for 1400 years. We've been celebrating Thanksgiving for a little while. <laughs> I don't know what it would mean to point at someone and say, behold the Thanksgiving turkey. Like that doesn't have any meaning at all actually. But it does have meaning to point at someone and say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's what Jesus did. So on the night right before Jesus is arrested, he's having a meal with his disciples. What meal is he having with them? The Passover meal. And and, and this part of the story is crazy. We can become so familiar with it, we can forget this. But he takes this established meal And tweaks it in a very significant way. He says, it's not no longer about this, it's about me. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. The audacity of that should be crazy to us. I've said this before, we've talked about this sometimes when we've served communion. It's be like us taking the Pledge of Allegiance and saying, it's no longer about Pledge of Allegiance to the United States, but Pledge of Allegiance to me. Like, that would be crazy. But that's what he did. Because Jesus in shedding his blood and his body breaking was dying in the place of his people. It was a new exodus, a new Passover, another Passover lamb, the greater Passover lamb. Sometimes when I speak to my children about what Jesus did for us on the cross, I speak of it as Jesus taking our spankings for us. That seems to communicate with my children. Um, We deserve them, but he took them. Someone had to pay. Every time we've stolen, every time we've withheld generosity, every time we've shaded the truth in our favor, every time we've looked at someone with lust, every time we've put something else before God, we've sinned. And there are consequences for that. But what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper is that Jesus bears those consequences for us as our Passover lamb. And I won't spend hardly any time on it at all, but just to say that this Passover lamb, which then becomes the communion story or the Lord's Supper, then looks forward to the wedding feast at the end of time that's spoken about in the book of Revelation. And even as Jesus is taking the Lord's Supper, he says, I'm not going to eat and drink This type of meal again until the end of time. When we celebrate it in my father's kingdom. In its fullness. And I tend to think. At least I tend to hope. That at that wedding feast at the end of time. I'll eat cheese again. (laughs) You look like you have fun when you eat cheese. I seem to remember what that was like. More important than eating cheese. And good food. And good drink. There will be friends and family, and healthy bodies, and no more sin, no more brokenness, no more injustice. And more important than those things, there will be God. And a relationship with Him that is the way it was meant to be. What does freedom mean to you? As I think about the Passover... (laughs) As much as I identify with the Israelites, I mean, that's normally what we do in church, right? The Israelites, God's people, and they were, they are. 
I tend to identify with the Egyptians. When I became a Christian in college, I'd been building my life on, we probably could say, three things. School, athletics, and a relationship with a girlfriend. And over the course of a year, all of them started to fall apart in significant ways. It was like I would try, you know, one would fall over and I'd try and pick it back up. And then the other one would start to fall over and I'd pick that one back up. And then it was like this, these, this game of Jenga that just constantly kept collapsing. It was like they had a plague on them. I wouldn't have described it like this at the time. But I think in hindsight, God, or at least for me, these three things had become godlike. I'm so thankful the Lord was freeing me from false worship of success and relationships. The Bible says in the book of Galatians that it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. That's a good thing. But the freedom God offers is not often the way that we speak of freedom today. It's not the freedom to live however we want. In a broken world where there's brokenness out there and there's a significant amount of brokenness in here, it means that even our wills and passions are broken. And so to just be free to live our truth would be its own kind of slavery. The freedom that the Bible is talking about is so much better. It's the freedom that God has in mind is to be free to be in a right relationship with him. Free to be in a right relationship with his people. Free to be in a right relationship with his creation. And to be that way forever. In a recreated world. And it will be that way forever for those who trust him. After a week of vacation Bible school, I know there might be some visitors here this week. Some of the things I'm saying are like, I think I understand what you're talking about, but I've heard stuff like that before, but I don't really get it. This is new to me. Just know that as a church, there is nothing we would want to be more than being there for you to help you think through what the Passover and the greater Passover, the work of Jesus might mean for you. So if you have questions about Christianity, uh, please make those known. I would love to be helpful. There are dozens of people at our church That would love to be helpful to you. One application for those of you. Perhaps who have been Christians for many years. Would be to tell the story. Of the way God has saved you. Share a meal with others. And just feast. And talk about the Lord's redemption in your life. Gather friends. Gather family. Gather neighbors. Gather your children if you have them. And tell your personal Passover story. Which of course is not your personal story. It's the story of all who are redeemed. And the person and work of Jesus. So me. Actually we were going to close our service in song. I think we got late. (laughs) With all the singing and dancing. We actually had dancing in our church today. Uh, You didn't dance enough. But they danced. So I'm just going to pray. And then we'll be dismissed. Have a wonderful week. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the story of redemption. We thank you, I thank you, that you have something better for us than false worship. And even when that's hard, it's a good thing. Lord, I pray that you would make 
the truth that has been sung and the story that has been reflected upon. Not just something out there in the distance, but something near and something precious and something joyful. Would you do that for us today? Thank you for the person and work of Jesus. And in his name we pray. Amen.